Well, friends, I want to invite you with me to open your Bible to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Exciting news uh, to share with you guys uh, this weekend. Um, uh, we've been able to plant churches in the past, and uh, one in Durham, one in Newmarket, and this weekend, uh, Redemption Durham, or excuse me, Redemption Newmarket, is celebrating their five-year anniversary already. Can you believe it? Can we praise God for that? Five years in Newmarket. Um, so excited uh, to see how God is helping this church thrive uh, up in Newmarket. And um, we're looking to see what would the Lord allow us to do next in church planting. So uh, I want to start our service by praying for Pastor Mike uh, and the church up there in Newmarket. And then even just praying, Lord, lead us to what we can do next. So would you join your hearts with me as we pray now? Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, your good grace uh, towards us, your great grace towards us, Lord. Thank you for Pastor Mike, uh, for the elders Dave and Jonathan, Lord, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would shine your face upon this church. Uh, Lord, would you uh, bless them and sh shine your grace and peace upon them, Father. And would they grow and be transformed and be a church that honors you and honors your name and that shows the greatness of your name to the world around them, Lord. Father, would you give us direction? What can we do next, Lord? Where could we plant a church next? If it would be your will, Lord, if it would be your will, we are, we are ready, Lord, but lead us, guide us, give us courage and faith and trust in you and we wanna see more churches planted in more places across the world and here locally, Lord. So this morning, Lord God, in our church, we need your spirit to give us guidance and instruction from your word. Lord, would you speak to us clearly and soften our hearts to be tender, to listen and obey and give courage to our hearts so that we would make decisions that honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What makes a church great? I've been able to visit a few churches recently. Uh, got to go to a downtown church, um, had lunch with a pastor, and it was a historic church, elegant church, um, majestic in its architecture, remodeled for new generation for functionality today. I got to perform a wedding in a, a quaint, cozy farm town church. Small compared to the historic downtown church, the smell of the carpet and the church was pretty clear. It's been around for a lot longer than I have. And um, I've been able to be a lot of different types of churches um, in my life. I've visited trendy churches that meet in coffee shops. I've visited uh, popular churches that meet in remodeled warehouses. I've visited village churches in developing countries where there's little electricity, if any, uh, no windows and no running water. What makes a church great isn't these exterior things. What makes a church great at the heart and the soul of a church? And when we visit churches, we assess the quality of those churches based on a lot of different factors. We ask questions like, what's, what's the speaker like? What songs do they sing? <laughs> Maybe a good question for us, did I get a good parking spot? Are my kids well, good, well cared for? Is the coffee warm enough? What programs are available? What's your financial accountability? Good questions. 
Do these questions truly get to the heart and soul of what makes a church great? Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verse 16 is going to reveal to us today four qualities of a great church. A great church at the heart and the soul of what it means to be a church. And as we learn these four qualities of a great church, I'm gonna invite you to ask yourself some questions. I want you to ask yourself, is Hope Markham a great church? I want you to ask yourself, am I contributing to this church being a great church? So as we do to honor God in the reading of his word, would you stand with me now as we read a portion of this text? We're gonna read Acts chapter four, verse 32 and verse 33. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You can take your seats, church. What makes a church great? So the first quality that we're gonna learn from this text that we see in verse 32 and verse 33 is that a great church is united in generosity. A great church is united in generosity. A couple weeks ago, in the story of the early church, uh, these people were 5,000 strangers. Probably never met each other before. But now they weren't acting like strangers, they were living together like family. They were united, one heart, one soul. They said that nothing they be that belonged to their own was their own. And they were willing and ready to give it to anyone who had need. They were united in a generosity that was selfless. Are we? One person is highlighted for his generosity specifically. I want to show us that example in verse 34. Look at it with me. Verse 34 highlights a man's generosity named Joseph. It says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph is evidently a wealthy landowner and he is an example of kind of what a lot of people are doing. Voluntarily, he um, liquidates his assets, he sells his property, brings the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet and trusts the church leaders to distribute it in an equitable and fair way to those who are in financial need in the church. He was generous. This was the heart and soul of the whole church, but evidently their generosity wasn't just financially too, it was emotional. It wasn't just with their money, it was with their words. Joseph, Joseph was a guy who was so generous that out of a crowd of 5,000, the apostles were able to pick him out. And the apostles saw his generosity with his words and gave him the name Barnabas, a nickname which means son of encouragement. He wasn't just generous with his money, he was generous with his words. 
Like Barnabas, we too can be financially and emotionally generous. We too can be united in generosity with our words and with our money. A great church is united in generosity. But a lot of us struggle to be generous. A lot of us struggle to be selfless. We can be really stingy. Financial stinginess isn't really about the amount that we give, but it's in the heart of our giving. I think that you can give a large amount, but still be stingy if you have the wrong heart. If you give, but your heart in giving is not sympathetic with people in need, I think, I think that's still a stingy heart and not generous. Like to be able to know that your money is going to people in need, but to think like, I worked for this. I earned this. And if you weren't so lazy, you wouldn't be asking for handouts. Despite the amount that you give, that, that you're giving is still stingy. This misses the mark of true generosity. And it, maybe it proves that you're only giving to just continue that attitude that you think you're somebody and that you're giving proves that you've made something of yourself. This misses the heart of true generosity, but thank goodness, thank goodness this isn't the way that Jesus treated me. This isn't the way that Jesus treated you. Sin is spiritual debt. And Jesus saw us in the red and didn't leave us by ourselves, didn't give what was needed reluctantly. He gave his life generously so that we could be released from our debt. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet though he was rich, for your sake, he was made poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. How about emotional stinginess? We're emotionally stingy when we avoid hurting people. Barnabas was the type of guy that if you were down, he would be there to lift you up. But emotionally stingy people don't want to interact with hurting people. They don't want to share your pain. They don't want to invite your suffering into their safe space. Some of us, it's first of the month, right? Some of us would rather be ready to give away every nickel we make in March than ever listen to someone tell us how much they're hurting. That's stingy. But thank goodness that's not the way Jesus, Jesus treated you. It's not the way Jesus treated me. We're all spiritually broken apart from God's grace. All of us are broken. All of us are filthy. All of us are weak. All of us are hurting. All of us are in pain and suffering. And if we don't think we are, then maybe we're more like the Pharisees. But Jesus didn't keep us in our hurt and pain at an arm's length. He said in Matthew 18, verse 28, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He invited your brokenness into his life so that you might find his healing. We can do the same for others too. 
the more we believe that we were needy people that needed to be forgiven, the more we believe that we were broken people that need to be forgiven, the more we enjoy the healing and the release of God's wealth and God's kindness in Christ Jesus, the more we will be generous to others. We will be a great church when we are united in generosity. You see, it's the gospel that motivates this generosity. It's the gospel that is the foundation for this generosity. It's the gospel that shapes a generous church. And this is the second quality of what it means to be a great church. We will be united in generosity, and a great church will be shaped by the gospel. See, there's one verse right in the middle of this explanation of how they had one heart and one soul in generosity that is the foundation, the basis, the formation. Verse 33 says this, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Great grace the writer of Acts is describing this generosity as an expression of God's grace. Yes, it was an act of human kindness one to another, but the human kindness that they showed each other was evidence of God's divine grace among them. What is grace? Grace is a term that describes the various, innumerable, immense expressions of God's kindness and favor towards his people. Grace is the proof that God is with us and that God is for us so that we can thrive and so he can be honored. Grace is not a reward that we've earned. Grace is a gift that's freely given in Jesus. Grace is received by faith alone and grace completely defines all of livelihood, all of our Christian livelihood. Your entire identity is summed up in that word, grace. The Apostle Paul believed this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I was a persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul said. By the grace of God, I was a self-righteous Pharisee. By the grace of God, I even consented to, for Christians to be killed. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You are who you are because of the grace of God. You've come to where God's brought you because of the grace of God. Even your family background even the person that you married, even the challenge you have with your kids, even the challenge you have with your job, all of the joys, all of the sorrows, if you're in Christ, it all happened by his grace to bring you to more grace and to lead you into further grace. Great grace is the expression that God is with us and for us so we can thrive for his glory. It was the reason that they were generous to one another. But how do we have this great grace? The text tells us, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Great grace accompanied the great power of the gospel. 
If we are going to be a great church, we need to be shaped by the gospel. And it starts in the pulpit, but it must be saturated within the hearts of all the people. But in the evolving moral landscape of our nation, the culture is trying to act like a referee towards the church. Like they're telling Christians, you can play this game, you can, you can do your religious game and partake in the larger society, but I'm penalizing you for these beliefs. No, no, those need to go on the bench. Absolute truth, like there's only one way, put that on the bench. Moral immorality as sin, now put that on the bench. Exclusive salvation, put that on the bench. You're probably being told that in a lot of different ways in your life, at work or with family or at school or in social circles. Unfortunately, after two generations of church history in Canada, we have a clear example of what happens to the church when they put the gospel on the bench. I have some unfortunate stats to share with you. Unfortunate stats that show while the church is growing and thriving in some places in Canada, in most places in our nation, the church is dying or dead. I want to share with you three numbers that communicate this. The first number is 5.6%. Award-winning journalist Margaret Wente, not a Christian, wrote an op-ed article in the Globe and Mail in 2012 about the decline of a specific Canadian denomination. She says this, this denomination's high watermark was 1965 when membership reached nearly 1.1 million. Since then, it has shrunk nearly 60%. For many years, this denomination was a pillar of Canadian society. Its leaders were respected public figures, but today the church is literally dying. The average age of its members is 65. Back in 1965, one denomination, one denomination in Canada, set aside Baptists, set aside Presbyterians, set aside Anglicans, set aside Roman Catholics, set aside Protestants, set aside or, um, Presbyterians, set aside Independents, one denomination, 1.1 million. For context, in 1965, Canada was only 19.6 million. One denomination had 5.6% of the entire nation coming into its doors every week. And now, the church itself, the denomination itself, has said that in a few years, likely, it's gonna go under. The second, six, the second number I wanna share with you is 1960. That's the year 1960. The article continues, they believe many things now. They do not necessarily believe in God. This denomination is not alone. Back in the 1960s, the liberal churches bet their future on becoming more open, more inclusive, more egalitarian, and more progressive. They figured that was the way to reach out to a new generation of worshipers. It was a colossal flop. All the secular liberal churches are collapsing. Not a Christian writing here. 
How much of a flop? How much are they collapsing? Well, that's the last number, 9,000. Senior reporter Bonnie Allen wrote for the CBC in March 2019. She says this, A national charity that works to save old buildings estimates that 9,000 religious spaces in Canada will be lost in the next decade. So by 2030, by the time my two-year-old daughter is 12, 9,000 religious spaces will close. For context, there are only about 27,000 in all of the country. In 10 years, it's projected that a third of all places of worship will either be condos, parking lots, or abandoned buildings. The sorrowful part is, for those churches that abandoned the gospel, God had already abandoned them long before the church doors were closed. Will the church of this generation learn the uh, lessons from the last generations? Church, I would ask you for to pray for me. Pray for me that I would have the attitude of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe. That's a curse. Woe to me. Cursed am I. My mom watched the sermon last night on a live stream and I called her after word and she said, yeah, you know what that curse is? If my son abandons the gospel, I'm going to slap him upside the face. <laughs> Thank you, mom. <laughs> but it's way, it's way worse than that. Pray for yourselves. Pray for each other. The culture is acting like a referee, trying to tell you to put your faith on the bench. Are you going to listen? The culture was trying to act like referee in Peter and John's day. Just before this text we're at, in the previous text, the Sanhedrin, the religious elites of the day, told Peter and John, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Their response was, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. What will your response be? A great church must be shaped by the gospel. When it is, great grace will pour out from God and we will be united in great generosity. Times will come when the greatness of the church is threatened. Times will come when the great grace, we may f be tempted to fall away from the great grace of God. And it's not just threats that can come from the outside that can lead us to fall away from God's grace. The threat often is from the inside. And when that happens, a great church will be protected by the fear of God. This message is rather heavy. It's rather weighty, and it deals with serious topics. And it does get a little more weighty from here. Let's look at the text again, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So if Barnabas was an honorable example of generosity, Ananias and Sapphira, or a hypocritical example of generosity. Verse three. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all, upon all who heard of these things. When we are threatened to fall away from the grace of God, a great church will be protected by fear. Here's the point. Hidden sins affect the health of the whole church. Ananias and Sapphira's hidden sin threatened the health of the whole church. It was severe. So severe that the apostle says their lying wasn't just lying to a church leader. It was lying to the Holy Spirit, to God himself. It was so severe that if it was not cut off, their hypocrisy could spread and the whole body may have fallen away from the great grace of God. The elders of the church are responsible for a few things, and it's helpfully remembered by four D words. The elders are responsible to protect the doctrine of the church, to give direction to the church, to lead the discipleship of the church, and when necessary, to discipline the church. When someone persists in unrepentant sin, to remove them for fellowship with the desire that they would be restored. In this instance, evidently God believed that their sin was so severe that the only solution, the only option was amputation. And sometimes for the health of the body, at least in, the, in this instance, for the health of the body, amputation was the only option. Well, if you get frostbite in your hand, Man, I really hope spring comes quickly. <laughs> but if you get frostbite in your hand and you don't deal with it, it could turn into the disease called gangrene, a flesh-eating disease. And if you don't deal with it, that could spread. And while you don't think it's affecting your hand, eventually it's going to affect your arm and might even go into vital organs. And for the health of the whole body, amputation might be the only option. And they were. And the result says that great fear came on the whole church. A great church will be protected by the fear of God. Fear is a natural, normal response to real threats. Right? Like if a burglar came to your door tonight and had you at knife point demanding your money, you're not making them a pancake breakfast the natural response would be to embrace the fear and act accordingly to protect yourself and your family. Hidden sin threatens the health of the whole church. And if church discipline is necessary, it's 
obedient to the Lord so that the whole church is warned that their hidden sin could lead them to places that they don't want to go either. Now, I've asked a question that I haven't found the answer to, but I've realized that we don't need an answer to this question. But I'll ask it to provoke your thoughts. Were Ananias and Sapphira genuine believers? True believers? I really was looking for an answer to this question this week as I studied the text, but I realized the author doesn't try and ask or answer that question. But what's implied is important. They were accepted as believers. They were treated like believers. They were welcomed like believers. But their hearts proved that they act, acted in an unbelieving way. Hidden sin affects the health of the whole church and you can play the game of Christianity and be disqualified if you're not watching your heart. See, that's the problem. That's why they lied. That was their hypocrisy. It started at the heart. Peter said two things that seem contradictory and are confusing. He said at the same time, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter saw what Ananias was doing and recognized with special knowledge from God that he had in his heart the same evil influence that influenced the high priest Caiaphas' heart, which motivated him with dark desire to put Jesus to death which is the same influence of darkness that has influenced the worst of atrocities of all human history. Satan filled his heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, Peter also said, why have you, Ananias, contrived this deed in your heart? Yes, the worst of all evils influenced him, but also he thought of it himself. Hidden sin affects to the health of the whole church Do you have hidden sin in your heart? If you have hidden sin in your heart and you're lying about it to others, you aren't just lying about it to others, you're lying about it to God. And it doesn't just affect you. It's not just a personal choice for your personal preference. If it misses God's standard for holy living, it's gonna affect you, it's gonna affect your family, your kids, your wife, your small group. It could lead the whole church to fall away from God's grace. Take heed of the warning of Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sins will find you out. For a genuine Christian, a real Christian, the evidence of your Christianity isn't that you say that you have faith, it's that you live a life of repentance with your faith. We're all gonna contrive evil sin in our heart. It's not if. We all will plan evil deeds in your heart. The question is, what are you gonna do when you're tempted by it? Are you gonna conceal it so that you can coddle it and nurse it and nurture it to enjoy it? Or are you gonna expose it into the light so it can be removed? For the Christian, The good news of the cross is that any sin that is left to be exposed has already been covered by the love of Jesus. 
By confessing, you may be not worried about exposing it because you're afraid. You're afraid of the shame. Will people think less of me? Will God love me less? Will I be hated more? So you think the easier decision is to hide. You're afraid of others. You should have the fear of God. By faith in Jesus, you can have the confidence that Jesus already suffered the judgment that you deserve so that you could be freed from it. A great church is protected by the fear of God so that we will not fall away from the grace of God that we have when we're shaped by the gospel that makes us united in generosity so that there's no one who has need amongst us so that, so that we have a love that exists amongst us in our generosity from God's grace, shaped by the gospel, protected by fear, that people see what we have and they're like, I want this too. And the more we experience the grace of God, the more we're going to want to be committed to the local church. And this is the last quality of what makes a great church from this text. A great church is marked by great commitment. Let's look at the text again, verse 12 to verse 16. It says, Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together on Solomon's portico. That's like a lobby in the temple. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that e- they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This passage shows us two things. First, it shows us that the grace of God continued to abound amongst them, specifically in seeing uh, people who were sick and ill miraculously healed. So it shows the great grace of God, but it also shows us something interesting. It shows us for the first time in the book of Acts a clear distinction between the believers and believers who are being added and unbelievers, the rest who did not dare to join them. No middle ground. They were marked by great commitment because those who were in were all in. Are you all in for the local church? When we look at their pattern and the way that they lived, there was no middle ground. They weren't wavering in between. They were all in on baptism. They were all in on large group gatherings together to hear the word of God preached and partake in communion. They were all in on small group gatherings in each other's homes in addition to the large group gathering. They were all in on generosity, giving their own funds, even selling their own houses and entrusting the church leaders to distribute it in an equitable way. They were all in on following following godly leadership as godly church leaders corrected sin in a godly way. They were all in on the mission of witnessing the gospel to the culture. Are you all in? Or are you wandering in the middle ground? 
I was able to have breakfast not too long ago um, with a couple other pastors um, here in Markham. Uh, I was able to get together with the pastors from uh, Cornerstone, the pastor from the Bridge, the pastor from St. Andrew's Presbyterian, uh, the pastor from um, Olive Branch, the pastor from Springvale, the pastor from UAC was invited, but uh, Univille Alliance, but he was out of town. I'm really blessed by the time together, really encouraging. A couple things I noticed about um, our breakfast together. We clearly recognize that we each operate a little differently. Um, we clearly each had a, a deep love for each other and for the city of Markham. And we each clearly know that people hop back and forth from the each churches. No, no one's hiding anything, though you might think it. And certainly you might say something about the church itself for you to jump from one church to another. But for people who just consistently go from church to church and that's your norm, I think it says something equally about the person as it does the church. What do you want out of church? The local church. Better yet, what do you want out of a relationship with Jesus? Some people treat the local church like they treat the... Um, retail associates at stores in the mall, right? Just walking to a store and just browsing around and, hey, can I help you with something? Just browsing. Some people treat church the same way they treat their favorite celebrities, like in movies or TV shows, and all of a sudden they're fans as soon as that celebrity is pos uh, popular. It's like, oh yeah, I was the fan the whole time. But as soon as that Celebrity isn't as popular anymore. There's another, I, was, I was a fan of this for the whole time. Some people treat churches like, like fast food restaurants. I expect it to be ready as soon as I show up, I'll eat it as quick as I can, and then I'm out. I think that shows that Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves the local church. I get this, the global church, the universal church. But when you look at the New Testament, every time it describes the church, it's talking about a local congregation at a geographical place. Jesus died for the church. He loves his church. He's committed to his bride. Maybe really what you all, all you wanted of Jesus is someone who can be there when you need something from him who you demand that you have your prayer request ready as soon as you order it. And you're happy being around him while he's popular, but not so much when he's not. What should church commitment look like? I think the act of church commitment looks kind of like two things. It looks like the decision to immigrate and become a citizen, and it kind of looks like parenting. It's not easy to decide to immigrate from one country to another and gain new citizenship. Some of you are in the process now. Some of you have gone through that process. When you need to leave the old country. You need to come to a new country. Sometimes you need to learn a new language, follow new leaders, obey new laws, get a new job. And when you gain that citizenship, it's not easily given away. And it's not easily gained. But we so treat church participation so cheaply. Like it's easy to toss around and change. And participating in church commitment is like parenting. It's a labor of love. Right? 
Parents, you love your kids, but sometimes it's, you don't, you don't want to like them, right? But you love them. You, know, you might think, it was like, well, I'm not a parent. It was like, yeah, but you know you weren't a golden child your whole life, right? And a good parent doesn't leave their kid even when they're much less than a golden child. Let's stick around. Jesus loves his local church. A great church is marked by great commitment because those who are in are all in. And the motivation to be in isn't to please someone, isn't because you need your name on a piece of paper, it's because you see the great grace of God in that local church and you want it more. And you don't want to have this lone ranger Christianity because you know you're a part of a body like an appendage is apart from the body. And your vitality will only be at its fullness when you're connected to the body. And you want to enjoy it and you want others to enjoy it as well. So I think of those people who even come to our church here hop around other churches, and you're not all in. And I understand there's life circumstances that keep us from being all in. I get sometimes our work schedule keeps us from being all in in the way we want. Sometimes our health and our age. Sometimes our kids, and we have newborns. Sometimes we've come from another church, and we left for a good reason, and we're just burnt out and weary, and don't let that become your new normal. But I think about the person who's just who just chooses the, the only ground they've known is the middle ground. And in love, but firmly, I would tell you, don't treat the local church like a cheap harlot. Don't treat the local church like cheap fast food. Jesus doesn't. Find the great grace of God, enjoy the great grace of God, and be all in. A great church is marked by great commitment because they enjoy the great grace of God, that great grace that is protected by the great fear of God, great grace that is shaped by the gospel of God and expresses itself in united generosity together. So are we a great church? And are you contributing to it? There's another more important question though to ask. Why should we even care about a church being great? Why should the church be great? Because the church bears a name that's more important than its own name out on the sign out front. The church bears the name of Jesus. And whether it's Hope Markham or Olive Branch or Cornerstone or UAC or The Bridge or we should aspire to be a great church, not for the sake of those names and the signs, but for the sake of the name that's greater than any other name, for the sake of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's strive to be a great church together and pray that all other churches in our city would be the same. Would you stand with me now as we pray? Father, your name is great. Your son is great. And I thank you that we are baptized in the name of Jesus. We are saved by the name of Jesus. Thank you that our life is full.
fully, completely defined by the name of Jesus and by his grace. And God, I pray that you would sustain your great grace here at our church and at all churches in our city, Lord God. And at churches that we've planted, Redemption Durham and Redemption Newmarket, and if we can plant another church, would that be a church marked by great grace? Great grace that is shaped by the gospel, that is united in generosity, that is protected by fear, the fear of God, and that is marked by great commitment, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity we have in the fullness of all who God is. Lord God, help us to be people who contribute to what you say is great. And maybe you be a people who are humble because you oppose the proud but give grace to those who are humble. Lord God, would we be marked by grace alone? In Jesus' name, amen.